0: Hello and welcome along to the Property Academy podcast. I'm your host Ed McKnight.
1: And I'm Andrew Nicholl.
0: And today on the show, we're talking about the seven principles of high yielding property. So yesterday it was all about capital growth. Now we're going to be talking about the principles of how to get high yield. But just before we get into that, I just wanna talk about the difference between yield and cash flow. Now these two are different but related because yield is the money you get, the revenue you get on a property as a proportion of the purchase price or as a proportion of its current value. The cash flow is the money you actually take out each week once you've paid all your expenses. Now here's the thing, you can have a very low yielding property with pretty good cash flow So that would be in the case if your mortgage is really low. So let's say you've got a million dollar property with a 3% gross yield, really low, If you've got no mortgage on that property, that's still going to produce okay cash flow. Doesn't mean it's a good investment, but it can still provide good cash flow. But at the same time, you can have a high yield property with very poor cash flow. So e.g. that might be an apartment with very, very high body corporate fees, or it, it might be a leasehold apartment. So it's got a lot of expenses with it. So it might get a lot of revenue as a proportion of the purchase price or current value, but has very, very poor cash flow. Now in today's episode, we are specifically talking about yield. And what I mean by that is the revenue you get as a proportion of the purchase price, because this is what a lot of the data goes around. And the actual cash flow you get off a property is going to be dependent on how you structure it, the operating expenses around it, and most importantly, the mortgage you've got against it. So we're really just talking about the revenue side today and these seven principles, because that's what we can get data on. Andrew, what's number
1: one on your list. So firstly is location. So cheaper areas tend to have higher yields. So areas which maybe have lower socioeconomic tenants, they're just maybe rougher areas, generally speaking. Smaller towns generally have higher yields. And Cheaper suburbs around major centers. So thinking about somewhere like Auckland, for example, Mangaday is a great example. In Christchurch, maybe it's somewhere like Limwood or Phillipstown, Town, Waltham, all these kind of areas. And although we're seeing a lot of these areas being pushed up at the moment because they're affordable and there's a lot of demand for them, generally speaking, you can get a good return on your rent versus your spend. An example for me, one of the properties that I swore I never mention again was Wilson's Road. When I bought that off my parents, I think I paid two hundred thousand dollars for it 15 years ago or thereabouts.
0: Andrew, people are going to think you've only ever owned one property in your life <laughs> rather, than these, I know. rather than these 38 we've talked about.
1: The the problem is with Wilson's Road, it's the one that I've had the most mental bandwidth on because it's been such a pain in the butt. And so that's why it always comes to my head. But you know, this was a property. Actually, no, okay, we'll go to the Clue Street, number one in my purchase ever. I can't remember exactly. I think I paid 200 grand for that. And at the time I was renting it out at, I think it was $80 a room and there were five bedrooms. So $400 a week divided by 200 and... What I say? $200,000? I think that sounds right. I have to look it up again. About a um, 10% gross yield. So that was a yield. huge, yeah, huge gross yield of 10%. And that was back in the days where I chased yield. So it was a really rough area. I think I mentioned on the podcast recently, I drove past it again. And I think it's it looks like it might be a drug house now. But it's just really funny how Well, nothing's you know, changed a property, then, has it? Well, they paid the rent in cash. So you got a really, really, really good yield. But with these properties, they're really, 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 really old. And then you have more problems so more vacancy, more maintenance. And all of a sudden, your bottom line, as Ed was saying before, is really compromised.
0: Second on my list is purchase price or current value. Now, I had a great question from Isaac on the text machine, texted into 5522, who said, Can you do a podcast on what price range properties return the highest value to rent ratio? So, which price range has the highest gross yield. And so we've got a relationship with, I think I can say this on the podcast, let's just pretend I can, what I call a Russian hacker. And so this guy builds robots to go take data from different websites and give it to me because... Not always, like for instance, Core Logic, our good friends at Core Logic, and One Roof, they don't all have the best data. And so, what I had this guy do was build a bot, a, a robot, that would go on and get look at every property that is currently being advertised for rent in Hamilton, and I just chose a city. So every property that's been going for rent and currently in Hamilton, and then go and find its value on one roof. So try and make a gross yield for every property currently available in Hamilton. Tell me what the gross yields are so that I can match up purchase price or current value with gross yield. And there is a trend, and we'll do another episode on this because I think we can talk a lot more about it, but the trend is this. Cheaper properties tend to have higher gross yields. And this comes into like cheaper suburbs have higher gross yields, but cheaper properties generally. So the properties that are around the 400K mark in Hamilton now, and you're probably going to say, Ed, what can you buy for 400K in Hamilton? And I appreciate that that's probably a fair sentiment as well. The air gross yields are ranging from about 8.6% down to about 4.7%. That bottoms out at around that kind of 800K mark, where they all tend to be between 2 and 4% after that. So anything before that kind of 650K mark, and specifically Hamilton, That's where gross yields start to pick back up. And it's a bit like almost a capital L shape, a little bit, where once you get to around that 700k mark, the gross yields are pretty flat. Whether you buy something that's 700k or whether you buy something that's $1.2 million in that specific city, anything below that, it starts to pick up gradually as the purchase price goes down. So purchase price is something that you'll be looking at as well.
1: Next on my list is multi-income. So there's a minimum amount of rent that you get for anything. So a one-bedroom unit is going to get, say, $400 a week. And if you add an extra bedroom onto it, so now you've followed the process of having an extra bedroom for the growth that we spoke about in the previous episode, well, you might only be up to $465 or $470. So buying something that's got limited number of bedrooms actually can work out to be a better yield. But if you've got two one-bedroom homes, then you get more rent than one two-bedroom home because you get 400 times two is 800 compared to, what I say, 475 before. So what's that? Geez, 950. Someone who is an AFA might have got that done a bit quicker. So sometimes actually having a fewer number of bedrooms can work out to be better And then I think that the scale does actually tip at the other end. You know, if you get something like a student accommodation or something that you do as a room-by-room rental and you've got 10 bedrooms, all of a sudden you're not spending so much for that extra bedroom. So there is kind of a, a bit of a split there. Also, if you've got, say, a main house, And a minor dwelling, so what we call a home and income often, renting them separately will often yield more money than just renting it together. So a great example of this is a friend of mine came to me recently and he was looking at a property in Christchurch. It was really interesting the way that the real estate had pitched this as an investor product. So they were selling it, it was a three-bedroom house and then a one-bedroom studio underneath the house. Now they were on two separate titles, which was really interesting. So technically speaking, they could be sold off. Off as two separate products. As a result, they were asking for a lot more money than probably the property is worth. I think it was probably worth say seven hundred thousand. They were asking for seven eighty because they was assuming that you got four hundred and fifty, I think, from memory, for the smaller unit, so the studio unit, and six hundred dollars a week for the main house, and they were multiplying that by fifty-two weeks in a year, and then working it on a seven percent yield, which worked out to be seven eighty. So I think that was more of a sales pitch than anything. I was saying to my friend, you're paying more than you ought to on this because of the fact that they're selling it on a yield basis, but you could never actually separate these out as two separate sales. Who's going to come and buy a one-bedroom unit and have a house above it and not own it all together? But if you have got something where you've got two sources of income, that's a really good way of getting that yield up.
0: Next on my list is apartments and townhouses. And look, this is for a couple of reasons. These sorts of properties tend to be cheaper, and so they tend to have higher yields. And we see this as well when we look at a bird's eye view of a city. Looking at a map, you'll often find that the area is right in the middle of a city. They might have really low capital growth, but they get very high gross yields. So Auckland West, for instance, which is kind of inner city Auckland, but on the west side of Queen Street, tends to have a gross yield average of, I think, 5.6% last time I looked. Why? Because it's full of apartments. Those are cheap places. People are still willing to pay good amounts of rent for them. Why is that? because they're close to good amenities, they're close to good transport routes. It's where people want to specifically rent because that's where they work and that's where they want to live. And so those sorts of properties do tend to get a really good yield as well. So apartments, townhouses, look out for those. What's next for you,
1: Andrew? Next on my list is appropriate spec levels with the property. So if you buy something, and I'm not saying low spec isn't terrible, I'm just thinking more suitable to an investor spec. So not putting the fancy splashback and the fancy tiled shower and all those kind of things, the heated toilet seat, all those kind of things that maybe don't necessarily need to be there to bring in more money from a rental standpoint. When you're buying for investment, you need to be thinking about an appropriate spec there. Higher spec means higher cost. Higher cost doesn't mean a higher yield. It probably means a lower yield. And a great example of this is when I see investors who buy show homes. So direct from the developer, you'll buy a show home. The developer, say Mike Greer Homes, will rent it back for the next couple of years. Often they'll pay a commercial rate on it for a couple of years, so it will seem like a good enough yield, and then it'll drop back to a market rent afterwards. Show homes are always much, much higher spec than you would expect for a normal rental property. And the reason for this is it's their show home. They're wanting to showcase the finest of every fitting that they've got. And so they will over the hell out of it. But that means that when it does become a normal rental, often it won't be a great yield for you. That doesn't mean they're not good investments for some people. There are some of my investors that they have been suitable for, but probably just not the masses.
0: And just one funny example of this as well that I always think about when it comes to spec. So a couple of people have texted in asking for a review of Williams Corporation products. Those guys are developers who advertise a hell of a lot on social media. Now, one of the things that's interesting about a Williams Corp property is often the toilets that they have, have those fancy attachments where you press a button and it sh- starts shooting water at I don't
1: even
0: Is that what they're called? I always forget what they're
1: called. A biday. A bidet.
0: And there's going to actually be a couple of good examples of this as well in the next couple of episodes. To me, I look at that and I think, oh, that's very nice, but is a tenant really going to pay more because that's in the property? Now, look, I'm not really sitting here saying that that's going to add a whole heap of extra cost to you purchasing the property, but it's just an example that I want you to think about where often developers will add things to properties that they think, oh, this is great. but. Does it actually get more rent for you as the investor is really the thing. Is it an appropriate spec for a tenant? Now, my next one, number six on the list, is bedrooms. It's quite interesting because I took my data set that I talked to you about the Russian hacker, and I said, well... Do more bedrooms equal more rent? Or rather, do more bedrooms equal higher gross yields? We know that more bedrooms are going to generally on the whole mean more rent, but does it mean a better gross yield? So for the extra money you've got to pay to get more bedrooms, is it going to end up with a better gross yield? And it is important to say that I think it's really important that there is stock out there that tenants can go and rent that has more bedrooms, because not everybody has a family that can fit into a three-bed home. There are lots of people out there who need four bedrooms, who might need five bedrooms. Now look, when I look at this specific data set, and this is only from Hamilton, maybe we need to scrape the whole of Trade me in one roof in order to be able to get the right data, but this says to be four-bedroom properties in this data set had the highest gross yield. That was followed by three-bedroom properties and then by six-bedroom properties plus. So two beds still got an okay gross yield, and this data set about 4.04%. Four-bed properties here got about 4.94% gross yield, so really good amount of rent. Now, that's not going to always be the case in every city. You've got to apply it to the specific property that you're looking at, but based on this data, four-bedroom properties had the highest gross yield that are renting in Hamilton right now followed by three beds so you might look for a higher number of bedrooms as long as it doesn't mean that there's a whole heap of extra stuff in there like three lounges because that's the sort of stuff that isn't necessarily going to get you more rent It's the number of the bedrooms compared to the size of the rest of the house that's going to push up that gross yield
1: Next on my list is land size. So again, this is something that I see investors sometimes get wrong if they're buying from just you know developers' stock list. They'll see something available in you know a house and land package, and the land size might be seven hundred square meters or something like that, which is way too big for your average tenant. And so more land equals more cost because of course you're paying for the land as well. More cost equals lower yield, and you've just got to remember that tenants don't want to maintain gardens. They want want really basic, they want simple landscaping packages, they want easy care lawns, they might not even own their own lawnmower or have the tools. In fact me with my house with extensive gardens just the other day obviously being in lockdown I realised the lawns were getting quite long and we don't have a gardener coming so I hunted around the section to try and find a lawnmower. I don't even have one. So there's a lot of tenants that are going to be in the exact same position. You don't want to have more land just because that's what you want as your own house doesn't necessarily mean it's what tenants want. They just want it really basic a lot of the time, particularly if they've got young kids. And so you just want to keep it pretty straightforward. But you can still buy in a subdivision where there's lots of common areas, which is a great way of having extra lawns without you having to pay for it or mow the lawns.
0: And last one, number eight. This one is on here more for discussion rather than something that I'm telling you, oh, this is a marker of a great high-yield property. (laughs) School zones. Now, this is one that the team were asking us about, Andrew, saying, oh, look, if all things were considered, we've got one property on the left-hand side of the road, that one's in a particularly desirable school zone, the other one isn't in that school zone. How does that change things in sort of yield? Now, we don't have any data about this because we'd have to look at very specific situations, find out what they were renting for. But what's your experience around this, Andrew? Do school zones matter to you at all?
1: Look, I don't think it makes a huge amount of difference, to be honest. It is something that sometimes comes up. I think your property has to be right for the area. So so whilst you know you can say, oh, it's a great school zone, if it's a one-bedroom townhouse or it's a two-bedroom townhouse, it might not be the right fit for that school zone anyway. Yes, there are, you know, single parents with maybe a a teenager – going to a good school, but it's not something that I would write home about as far as making sure that I considered that strongly in my investment purchase. I just look at the market rent, but it is something that, you know, you can sometimes, so if, if you're in a really superior school zone, sometimes that can justify paying a little bit of extra money because it pushes up the rent, but to be honest, I think for most of the time, it's not that big a deal.
0: So just to summarise, before we wrap up, those seven things that we're looking for, those seven principles of high rent, locations, specifically cheaper areas, purchase price, so below a certain point, in this case we're talking about 650k in Hamilton, below that we started to see yields pick up, multi-income properties, apartments and townhouses, properties with appropriate specs, so not adding in a whole heap of stuff just because an owner occupied would want it, but a tenant's not going to pay for it. Number of bedrooms, we were looking three, four, tended to have that high yield. Land size, and then, hey, look, if you really want to go for extra credit, maybe you'll consider school zones. Hey, look, let's wrap it up there, but just want to read you one more review that's come in. This one is from DRHP1, so I'm going to call that Dr. HP. And <laughs> this one is a five-star review called Love It. He says, or she says... I have learned so much listening to this podcast. Love the humor and how you make this podcast fun learning. Keep going. Keep putting out the great content. Hey, we really do appreciate that. Big motivation for us to keep pumping them out. So thank you so much. And make sure you tune in as well, not just to tomorrow's episode, where we are going to be talking about about how to get a loan or a mortgage if you are a business owner or freelancer so you've got variable income but make sure you check out the deal at thedeal.co so we just released the final episode where a developer comes on and pitches to the deal makers last night that was a great guy called Cullen bartlett from timaru really good episode go to thedeal.co it's there for you now and hope you enjoy that one Thanks for listening to the Property Academy podcast. I'm your host, Eric McKnight.
1: And I'm Andrew Nicholl.
0: And we're going to be back again tomorrow with even more daily strategies, tactics and insights to help you get the most out of the New Zealand property market. Until next time.